Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter 26. Following the map, after leaving Maharn's place, I went directly toward the center of town. There were at least two other checkpoints along the way. One I was able to bypass by walking through the smashed front door of a small shop and then squeeze out through a back window. This put me on the next block over. With the other one, which was right near the square, I managed to time it right and trot up behind a line of workers who'd just been waved through. The woman at the back was struggling with a long metal pipe, and I caught up the dragging end. She flashed me a thankful smile, and the two of us brought it right in. This all had to be preparations for the festival Mathers had mentioned. The rest of the group had pipes too, along with boxes, tools, and other equipment. With such a small population on planet, they could afford to spread some things out. Freedom Square was a quarter kilometer on a side, and it felt even bigger at the moment, being nearly empty. A spy sat in orbit could have easily tracked me in there, save for the periodic cloud cover, and some could see me even then. Griselda had no such cameras aboard. For a moment, though, I pretended it did, and that it was right above me somewhere, and I glanced to the darkening sky. We marched our pipes and stuff over to some workers near the center of the square. I dropped my end when the lady did, but turned away with a wave when she tried to strike up a conversation. The dedicated work crew in the square consisted of a few human construction teams and some load bots on tracks. These were burdened with what looked like large steel barrels. As we approached, the load boss of the crew had one bot set down its barrel, and the others trundled off toward a far exit. The sun was low now, but seemed unchanging under Barlow's slow rotation. As they drove away, the bots threw back narrow, moving shadows almost half the length of the square. From what I could tell, the barricades at each compass point were intended to keep crowds in here to a minimum while preparations were made. A fair number of revelers were present nonetheless, people who might have snuck in like me or who'd been here all along. Indeed, there were at least 15 or 20 ramshackle survival huts and piles of trash that served as makeshift hovels for desperate types who'd taken up some sort of permanent residence in public. I figured they might have had a month or so before the new regime clamped down on vagrancy, but for now they possessed a ringside seat to the city's human drama. Something cooking outdoors suddenly made me very hungry, the scent of faux meat on the slight breeze. I wandered around for some time trying to source it, and eventually spied what looked like an outdoor soup kitchen on the north side of the square. Intended to feed the festival prep workers, already a line was forming, 
I stood with the rest of them, seeming for all the world like one of the planet's many downtrodden. And hey, I had carried a pipe. When I made it to the front, I nodded in sincere gratitude for the tray of rich black bread, exotic stew, and a cup of some sort of coffee substitute, bitter and grainy, but hot. Wandering off, I sat on some newly built stairs, rising up to what would be a large dais or stage for the coming festival, once it was finished. At the moment, there was a single chair up there in the middle, and I was tempted to plop down on it while I ate. The idea was to be invisible, though, so I stayed put. I rang up Mathers then, but opted not to eat while talking, in case his own repast this afternoon amounted to only more coffee bags. You get a response? he asked before I could even say hello. Yep, we're meeting in a few hours. I'm not supposed to know where he is, remember, so I gave him time to get back to town. Consider it and cunning, he remarked with a chuckle. Hey, listen, it's far from a sure thing yet, but if I do get out of here, you're coming along, right? Griselda has the room, and if you don't mind freeze tubes, I'm sure I can swing it with the owners. He didn't respond right away, but then replied with a quiet, almost nervous version of his trademark laconicness. Well, that, uh, that sounds delightful, but my social calendar is just booked. You can't possibly want to be here, I interrupted, thinking he was concerned about the passage fee or was maybe tripping over some last shred of pride. Hasn't this place taken enough from you? Eh, Jock, understand, I, I live in the same factory that made me the man I am today. When I first moved here, I had to blend in. I needed a job. The working conditions aren't well, you've seen the place. There was an accident. It's the same place? Why in God's name would you stay there? It's safe from the gangs outside, and they see it as a kind of compensation, I guess. A roof and some luxuries, like running water. His voice was almost breaking, and I didn't think I could bear hearing that, so I interrupted him again. It doesn't matter. None of that matters now. We'll get you back to civilization. Get you fixed up. I can't go back. Not broken and poor. When I say I made enemies, people with a long reach, I mean it. If I show up on any of the major worlds, I'll be even worse off than I am now. It might be hard to believe, but I've seen what they do to people who cross them. They'd never find me here, especially like this, but in the Alliance proper. Then leave the territory. Go to corporate space. Get a new face, a new body. Medical care over there is comprehensive and top flight. Maybe. Someday. I sat there feeling more helpless in that moment than at any point yet. He was utterly unreachable. He'd crawled under those stairs to die, and I had nothing but hope to offer him. Can't I... is there anything I can do for you? He cleared his throat and replied, Well, a little remuneration wouldn't be untoward. <laughs> Your finance institutions have all been dissolved, I pointed out with a laugh, but it tasted bitter, like the coffee. 
talk about banker's hours. Well, keep me in your happy thoughts, stranger, and I'll do the same for you. Deal? Deal. I didn't break the connection. Somehow, I couldn't. He could have hung up too, but didn't. At length, his vid feed came on, maybe for the first time since the unknown accident that had ripped him apart. He turned his one eye toward the camera and stared at me. Good luck, Ejok. You too. We both cut the call at the same moment. When I was about halfway through the meal, just a few minutes later, my retinals flashed with a network notification. The global world net was back up. Others in the crowd must have had devices scanning for its return as well, because a scattered cheer sounded from all over the square. The new guys in charge were scoring popularity points every day, it seemed. The network was still a little shaky and dropped out two more times in the next ten minutes but was soon back to stay, strong and steady. As a test, I dialed into the Finery directory, followed the link for Orbital Telecommunications, and found Griselda still listed. The ship was probably on its way out of the system now, but it would be in range of increasingly delayed communications for almost a week. I was just making the hand motions to dial in when they called me. I answered on audio only, self-conscious about my appearance suddenly. Ejok, are you okay? Ira, in that moment representing the ship itself, was a true pleasure to hear. I smiled around my coffee cup, which was just at my lips when the call connected. I'm okay right now. What about you guys? How long until Star Jump? Everyone's fine, but we're still docked. You're still... what? Why? We can't leave. There's this bomb and... A bomb? What are you talking about? Is the ship okay? No, it hasn't gone off. We're... Look, let me patch you through to pause. Hold on. The first officer picked up only seconds later. Ejok, where are you? Are you okay? Are you guys okay? I countered, feeling suddenly very anxious. What's this about a bomb? The new station admins refused to unlock the docking clamps, so we worked out a bypass. Then they sent a group into the bay and attached a box to the ship's cargo doors. When they called, they said it was a bomb, and if we tried to leave or remove it, they'd set it off. That's crazy! They'll blow up the station, too! No, he replied with a frown. Gasto says it's a shape charge. He thinks it will damage the ship, but leave the station mostly untouched. Oh, man. What do they want? The ship itself? Well, that's the strange part, Aylareda expressed, sounding confused. They haven't said. It's like they don't know what they want. I've asked about Carmi and Dell at least a dozen times, and they don't know about them either. It's like they're waiting for orders. Who's in power down there now? Looks like the seculars have it. Those blue rag guys? There's this General Beckus in charge. He'll be the new dictator, I think. Can you talk to him? Not a chance. I'd never get close. Is that box really a bomb? How can Gasto be sure? We were able to break into the local security feed, he answered. 
Our new passengers knew about some system back doors, and Ira was able to get us a close-up of the ship's exterior through the station's own cameras out in the bay. Gasto says it's a makeshift thing, but it's real. If it works the way they threaten, it would blow completely through deck C and essentially destroy the aft part of cargo. Candy must be beside herself, I commented, as I watched a group of armed blues start on a slow patrol around the square. Proper soldier types, no ragtag freedom fighters this time. Maybe Beckus had already started disarming the civilian warriors, or more like, packed them off to far-flung corners of the planet to fight the remnants of the loyalist forces. Either way, these guys right here would be more professional and vigilant as a matter of course. She's a wreck, he confirmed, without any hint of humor. She's beyond worried, almost hysterical. I've never seen her like this. I had to order her to take a sedative and lie down. Can Gasto and Sherry remove the thing? Is the bay being guarded? Yes, there's a round-the-clock picket out there now. Gasto says they could have fail-safes built into it as well. If we were to move it, even without them seeing, it might go off. He's looking at other options, though. How are you? Are you safe? I eyed the roving guard contingent before answering, not sure if I should lie. For the moment, listen, I know where Carmi and Dell are being held. Well, that's good, he replied. If the new boss man is out of reach, can you make a deal with the orbital control office down there? A ransom or bribe is fine. If we have it, we'll pay it. There is no orbital control. You must have seen the nets. The entire government has collapsed. Rich people, bureaucrats, company managers, they're all on the run. But I have something else in the works. I'm meeting with Mr. Small and his team later tonight. Really? They're alive? How did you find them? It wasn't easy, I spoke hurriedly, because the soldiers were making their way over towards the platform. Plus, it seemed like lunchtime was over, because a couple of workers had come back and resumed their construction tasks. Look, I have to sign off for now. I'll call again later if I can. Okay then, Ejok. Be careful. I cut the link just as the soldiers came up. I covered the fact that I'd been talking to somebody they couldn't see, an unusual activity for a person too poor to own off-world tech, by just continuing to mutter, this time in complete gibberish and without a pause. I could only hope that my overall manginess would pass muster once more. I offered them exaggerated sidelong glances while simultaneously turning away on the step. A tall one in front said something sharp to me in low speak. After I didn't respond, he let out an exasperated sigh and waved his hands to shoo me away. I kept muttering but gathered up my bag, the plate and cup, and wandered off. They watched me for a bit, but then continued their simple patrol. That had been close. The automated defense systems before had been spookier, but this might have been an even nearer miss. Either way, I decided to keep as low a profile as possible from this point forward, and started gathering up discarded plates and other trash from around the square, just another peasant worker. 
Freedom Square had been more or less installed when the basics of the city were first laid down by the last wave of terraforming automatons nearly a century before. I'd picked the place because it was public and open and I could get there on foot. Crowds might complicate any delicate negotiations, but at least Small and company would be doing so without much firepower in hand. There were too many guards here to flaunt the mercenary look. On the other hand, killing a person quietly in a crowd wasn't too hard if you knew how to do it, and I could only assume they did. Round about then, I noticed that a small army of riggers had come onto the job and were now dashing hither and thither, laying down cables, hooking up wireless nodes, and dropping in place what I took at first to be a huge banner over the front of the courthouse, directly behind the raised platform where I'd eaten lunch. This turned out to be a tremendous, flexible screen, fully 200 meters in length and at least 75 or 80 high. Getting the thing up there would have been a massive undertaking, which I'd seen no evidence of this afternoon. I could only assume, therefore, it had already been in place on the roof as an aspect of public functions for the old regime. It took the better part of an hour for them to roll it down over the face of the building as they were going slowly and carefully. Once this was accomplished, a bright show of short video clips sprang to life over the gigantic display's face. This was a test cycle, I guess, allowing the text to adjust color and clarity, accompanied by a crashing symphonic score which emanated from the screen itself. The video images covered the length and spectacular breadth of the natural wonders of Barlow, but they were only a couple of seconds long each, and just faded one into the next. The picture was crisp and clear, even in the bright sunlight, so I expected it to be very impressive in the dark. The sound was huge and booming at first, with spine-rattling bass that fairly stopped me in my tracks, but they turned it down to a more reasonable level as the testing went on. A smaller team of multimedia gurus futzed with a set of commercial audio-visual drones, sending them skyward one by one and flashing the hovering robot's live feeds onto the big screen. The images were stuttery and unreliable while they were setting the network up, but slowly the feeds from the cameras and the transitions between them all became smooth, solid, and professional looking. There were so few people in the square just then that they randomly tested the drones out on those of us who were working. At one point, a slight triangular machine paced by my side silently for almost ten seconds. It tracked me as I bagged up discarded grano bottles, and my image filled the huge screen the whole time. For just a few moments, I was a giant on the earth. And wow, did I look bad! My big break into showbiz and I was covered in filth and picking up garbage. Another hour went by before they finally opened the gates, letting the general mob pour in. There had been big lines building out there for quite a while. The drones had passed over the outlying streets several times, and it seemed like more and more people were showing up. They laughed and sang while waiting to get in, and everywhere the drones looked and listened, excited faces flashed on the giant screen. There seemed to be a legion of buskers and street vendors out among them, too. 
I didn't know what they were using for money just yet, with the financial system still in a shambles, but they were doing brisk trade on trinkets and noisemakers. The construction was all finished, and the platform, once completed, seemed more like a bandstand or open-air proscenium stage. That single chair had been augmented with a smaller platform by now, raising it up even higher. Whoever sat in it would command a great view and a great deal of attention. This person wouldn't be alone up there, though, as a live musical band had arrived at some point and were busy tuning their instruments, even as the general mob streamed in. I recognized a guitar, a drummery unit, and something like a skinny piano, but there were at least three other instruments in evidence that I'd never seen before, one with strings, one with bells, and another large and electronic. This band was composed of seven young men and women, and they had a wide repertoire, covering modern pop, military marches, and what were probably some ethnic favorites. The lead singer was a woman who also played the drummery. She had a deep, husky voice, and the music seemed keyed to it. They didn't perform with any passion or showmanship as yet, since they were just warming up and setting levels and such. They didn't even finish most songs at first. By the time the people were pouring in, though, they had a festive groove going on, piped directly to the great screen. Some drones assigned to cover the platform now focused on them, and they were definite stars, larger than life and ready to perform for a big, enthusiastic crowd. Some genius had moved the portable freshers away from where they'd been all afternoon, and they were suddenly hard to find. There weren't enough of them for a crowd this size anyway, and people were still pouring in. A long storm drain, opposite from the screen, was now partitioned off and drafted into use as an open urinal. Men and women made grateful use of it, as did I then, figuring the smell would only get worse as the night wore on. Apparently meant to feed the bathroom problem, dark beer was being handed out by the cupful from long tables off to one side. It was free of charge, and whole barrels of the stuff were being rolled into the square even yet. There were little shots of Grano available too, and I went and got one just to keep out the chill. Boy, Mathers had been right. I choked on this harsh, amber version of the stuff and could almost feel my liver curling up into a protective ball. It was fully dusk now, and though still overcast, warmer than much of the day had been. Nonetheless, puddles had started to skim over, though with all the revelers stomping about, the square remained wet and slushy. My gifted cold gear from House Vernay's was really good stuff, even dirty and torn in spots as it was now. I could probably have slept outside all night in it if I'd had to, though it would get colder, well below freezing. That was simply the pattern here in the tropics of Barlow. The big screen moved through different feeds, from swooping overhead shots of the crowd to close-ups of chattering and laughing people mugging for the cameras, and then over to general coverage of the band, which was playing in earnest, and actually finishing the songs now. The vocalists sang exclusively in low speak, so I couldn't follow any of it. It had been about three and a half hours since I'd exchanged messages with Small. The overhead shots on the screen showed all the streets leading to the square to be choked with people, 
They were pouring in from out of town by the thousands. Finding the supposed reporter and his crew in this mess would be a task Herculean in nature, even assuming they could get close. This location and time had been my choice, so I was feeling pretty stupid by now. The band made full use of the stage, treating it like their own, but the chair in the center remained vacant. Clearly, someone important was expected in the place of honor, perhaps Beckus. This was a secular event, after all, and he was the star. All at once, the giant screen flashed to an image of a more formalized version of the revolutionary boxed star. It filled the screen and radiated sunbeams in gold and silver. This design had no graffiti quality to it, but rather the gravity of a state symbol. The band stopped their pop tune and, after a few moments, began to play what sounded like a slow dirge, and the crowd shouted its approval. People were still coming in, though the overhead images of the square showed us to be wall-to-wall -wall already. There had to be hundreds of thousands just in the square alone. Indeed, the multimedia team had had to raise the band's volume several times as the human din became an inhuman roar. It was a passionate thing, despite the slow beat and the language barrier for me, sung with solemnity and deep pathos by the keyboardist. Within just a few bars, the entire mob, the entire square and outlying roads took up the song, apparently known by all, and finery rang with the voices of the downtrodden and wronged, of the beaten and once hopeless, of the long-suffering masses, now masters of the world. A man next to me wept openly as he sang, his voice cracking, his face wet and flushed with patriotism and grano. And he wasn't alone. They were free from the bitter yoke of tyranny, free to pursue their destinies. It was a magical, joyous thing to be sure, all of them swept up in the beauty of the new night. When the anthem ended, abruptly and weirdly, I thought, the crowd went mad with joy. They screamed with unabashed love for the state, whatever form it was taking. Thousands of black-knit caps, for who would let politics ruin a party, and other hats were tossed high in the air, and maybe hundreds of rifles and pistols snuck in by young rowdies were fired off into the night sky. I was slapped on the back a dozen times by a dozen different people. Others shouted incoherent expressions of raw emotion into my ear, then moved on to do the same to the next person. I had bottles shoved into my hand and snatched out again, over and over. It was an enormous, epiphanous moment for the entire world, and I danced and jumped and shouted with the best of them, lest I be seen for a fraud. I wasn't near the stage anymore, but the screen was viewable from everywhere, and it was right about then that the feed from first one camera, then several, centered upon a group of blue-banded figures in the cold gear of the secular military, as well as some in civilian gear. Their images filled the screen, flashing from one camera angle to another. The drones had only caught them when they were already close to the stage, so there was no way to know where they'd initially come from. The tall one in the lead was Beckus. 
He was making his expected appearance at last, waving to the crowd while climbing the stairs I'd sat upon for lunch. People cheered, clapped, whistled. The others in tow filed up behind him in a tight line as he stood center stage bowing quickly and clapping back at the crowd. The band played a fast pop tune, and spotlights from surrounding rooftops swept the stage. Up on the screen, Beckus came across as a dark man of middle years, with bright, enthusiastic eyes, brash good looks, and an impeccably tailored uniform. He looked like a fairy tale prince, calm, charming, and apparently candid, and cut an impressive figure. Heck, I might have voted for him myself if I'd been a local and if anybody actually got a vote. He pointed out friends in the crowd. He waved and blew kisses. Clearly, he was transitioning from military man to populist leader, and the gleeful people of this world were along for the ride. Indeed, they were carrying him there. The man's voice, amplified via an unseen throat mic, was tied into the giant display. He asked for our attention repeatedly until the noise died down to a dull undercurrent he could talk over without shouting. The band never stopped, but had dropped its volume considerably. I couldn't understand him even then, as he spoke in a rapid, low-speak dialect. Babble, stop, babble, stop, like little weapon bursts. My rig might have been able to translate at least some of this on the fly, poor as the program was, but it couldn't discern the general's voice over the loud jerk next to me, recounting his life story to some woman he was trying to impress. After a time, between rounds of quick speech followed by applause, he did a verbal build-up to introduce someone from back down the stairs. I caught this guy's name as Paolo something or other. The drones weren't in a good position at that moment to pick the guy up on camera, but they didn't have to. With a rise in volume and energy, Beckus gestured, and a fellow skipped up the stairs like he owned the stage. A young man, well-known by one and all, because the cheering turned into another roar. The band broke into a fast tune that sounded like a talk show theme song. Paolo, in some truly amazing blue sequin cold gear, danced across the stage. He hammed it up and spun around in little mock pirouettes, waving and shouting directly at individuals in the front ranks that he knew. He stopped in front of the band and did a goofy genuflection. They all laughed as they played, and Paolo turned to hustle the crowd shamelessly, effortlessly, like a man in his natural element. He swept his arms up several times in a theatrical fashion. This caused thousands of voices to shout out some low-speak catchphrase, like a pop culture mantra. I could only imagine he was a planet-wide vid celebrity or a stand-up comedian, for he clearly loved a live audience, and they clearly loved him. Several cameras were following him around the stage, like obese hummingbirds, and he made offhand references to them that put the crowd into stitches. He played hide-and-seek behind Beckus, behind the line of people who still stood with the general, and even behind the band, the drones chasing him all over, and the mob ate it up. Beckus laughed with the rest of them, because he was one of them. He was a good sport. He was a regular guy, just like you and me. Sensing the instant the energy level began to drop, 
Paolo dashed to the general and pumped his hand like this leader of the seculars was his best friend in the world. Indeed, Beckus gave him a fast hug in return and exchanged a few witticisms I couldn't follow. The general then ceded the stage entirely to another roar of love and approval, the many thousands in the square expressing all their hopes and joys as one. A camera had been finally pointed in that direction, so the screen overhead showed Beckus step down into a wide, roped-off area in front of the stage. I couldn't see this with my own eyes over the thousands of heads in the way, and I hadn't noticed them setting it up before, so it was all new and really quite exciting. He shook hands with adoring followers over the rope and between a wall of armed guards who prevented them from pressing closer. The lucky few in front would tell their children and grandchildren about the day they shook hands with Barlow's brilliant savior. He grinned and waved at everyone, the hovering camera following easily, and he was swept up by a military entourage that flanked like pilot fish. The angles on the big screen switched several times, and I saw that the velvet ropes extended all the way around the stage, and then back to the wide doors of the courthouse. These doors had dozens of guards and other official-looking people standing about on duty, or just on display. In half a minute, the great leader was at the building entrance, where he stopped one last time for a wave and a smile before disappearing inside. Paolo said a few more comedic things to bridge the moment, getting laughter and whistles, then suddenly transitioned to a more sedate, almost serious tone. This did nothing to quell the noise, though, because whatever he said brought shouts and raised fists all over. I figured this to be some sort of solidarity speech before the real entertainment began, but then he started introducing the people standing behind who had come up with Beckus. One by one, they stepped forward as the sequined MC stated their names and, I assume, a thumbnail of their professional and revolutionary qualifications. They each replied a few words of greeting, amplified by unseen mics. They got polite rounds of applause, but they weren't apparently well known to the general masses. They also were not entertainers of any stripe. In fact, I had no idea what they were supposed to be. The last guy Paolo introed was an old man with a trim, white beard and ferrety features. He managed a smile for the crowd, revealing bad teeth. They cheered and whistled anyway, though not like they had for Beckus or Paolo. This guy said a few words to the spangled celebrity in low speak, then at one point said in English, But of course we seek only truth. Then he concluded his introductory words with a bowed head, and the entire square, the entire however many people, broke into applause, cheers, and actual howls of enthusiasm and joy. The guy turned, stepped up, and sat in the chair on the raised platform. The others followed and stood near him, some on either side. As for Paolo, he clowned to the crowd for another minute, carrying the moment again, before visibly cueing the band off to the side. They broke into a fast, driving theme, like one of those invisible background tunes in vids during action sequences. He was wearing a wrist display of some kind, 
because he activated a pop-up text feed that floated above his hand, and he read some prepared words. These sounded important or official. Whoever was in charge of the audio-visual end of things took this moment to finally get some overlays onto the big screen, with the names of all the players on stage hovering below their respective images. The cameras cycled restlessly. The old guy with the tight face and brown teeth was called Probator Scan Del T. Probator seemed like a job title, but it was unclear. The others up there were likewise identified by descriptors I didn't understand. All of them were now busy discussing something in a close group, microphones off. Paolo, an expert in sensing the mood of the audience, picked up on their sudden boredom and began doing this weird little shimmy as he read. He must have been required to verbalize all that crap, which no one cared much about, so he was doing his best to make it entertaining. The crowd loved it. They laughed and laughed as the entertainer read the boring tripe while dancing and spinning and gesturing lewdly to men and women near the velvet rope. Then he lay on the stage floor, crawling around like a ridiculous exotic dancer. I laughed with the rest of them, deeply, gaspingly, until there were tears. At length, the camera feed switched to an overhead shot from high above, maybe a hundred meters or more. It swept slowly over the plaza, showing the crowd packed right in, cheek to jowl. The drone did a fast calculation and came up with the number 488,764, which climbed by twos and threes as the seconds went by. It was the number of people in the square, nearly half a million in one spot on a planet with less than 50 million total. That was an impressive turnout, and I had no doubt the show was being streamed worldwide now the big nets were conveniently up again. The band kept playing, eventually switching to a quieter, folksy range of tunes, Paolo having finished his energetic recitation. He got huge applause for it and was sweating and breathing hard in the growing cold, yet grinning like the king's fool. He excused himself for a moment, stepping off the stage, down to the roped-off area, drones following him as he grabbed some water, laughing with his own cronies there. His mic was off at this point, and the big screen started swapping vid feeds from all the rest of the camera drones while the hard-working MC took a moment to collect himself. The probator on stage and his people consulted handheld devices and continued to talk between themselves. The crowd was happy, so it didn't seem to mind the wait at first, but as it stretched on, the background noise increased. One of the high-flying drones offered us a tremendous view of finery itself, panning its camera in a 360. People filled the radiating avenues off the square as densely as they did within. There had to be two or three million people in the streets now celebrating this thing. Avenues were ablaze with newly installed lighting, and each intersection in all directions seemed to have a ringed-off area in its center. Similar, though smaller, screens were unfurled at each of these places as well, hanging from shops and factories, showing identical imagery. 
The Blues had managed to put on a live performance with ringside seats for the entire city. Right then, I received a notification in my field of vision of a text chat request. That had to be small. Can't get through. Streets full. I couldn't respond verbally because of all the noise, and I was too pinned in for any extensive gesture typing, but I managed to shrug my way through a short response. Okay, meet after. Right. And he dropped off again. It was good we kept that short, because the music changed, going into another fast theme. Paolo took to the stage again, with a swell of welcome and approval. He dashed around and around, doing a ridiculous duck walk that broke me up. The guy could have been, should have been, a star throughout the galaxy, instead of just in this frozen hole. He ended his routine with some sloppy tap dancing, barely in time to the music, and so absurd with the driving rock theme as to be simply precious. That tune, and the goofing around, came to an end after a minute or so with deafening applause. Paolo motioned for us to pipe down. This took a while, but the unseen multimedia director cranked up the screen's volume for a bit, allowing the energetic MC to speak over the noise until it dropped somewhat. Paolo held off until the perfect moment, then launched into another sort of introductory speech. This one was short, and in moments he represented Probator del T on the dais. More applause and a camera settled on the old man while Paolo stepped to the side, clapping with the rest of us. The probator cleared his throat for a bit, maybe to get the crowd to quiet down again. If so, this proved useless, so he stood and raised his hands. It seemed to take forever, and Paolo even screamed for us to shut up in at least three different languages. This got more laughs, but actually did the trick, for the collective chattering roar dropped a bit, and the white-bearded, rotten-toothed man then picked up his data pad and started to read in low speak. This was definitely a pre-planned speech, supplied in advance to the director of the show, because translations popped onto the screen as he proceeded. Overlaid above and below his image, in English and Seishan respectively, his words were presented for everyone, regardless of which side of the border they'd been raised or where their loyalties lay. My fellow citizens, we are gathered tonight in the square of our fathers, in the town of our fathers, upon the world of our fathers. We are gathered here in the throes of victory and joy. We are gathered here to be counted as the inheritors of this place and to announce to the very galaxy that the planet of Barlow belongs to the people of Barlow. This got a wave of applause that arose all around. It carried with it the far-off sound of equal enthusiasm from the throng in the radiating avenues, and it took quite a while for the noise to die down again to a level that allowed him to continue. Please, the probator said in accented English, hold your responses until I am done or we will be here all night. 
This got scattered laughs, though the guy himself, with his pinched features and narrow eyes, struck me as wholly incapable of either making or appreciating a joke. He then continued the speech in low speak, and the on-screen translation returned. As I say, we are here to celebrate, but we must not forget that our true work is just beginning. We have a world to rebuild, a society to repair. There will be hard times ahead as we look for balance, as we look for fair play. We cannot allow the injustices of the past to be repeated. We must dismantle the old power bases and destroy both the plots and their plotters. But we are not barbarians. We are a young, modern society and seek only a modern solution to an age-old problem. We seek to clear the stigma of betrayal from those who do not deserve it. We seek only truth, as I say once again. The idle chatter was starting up again. Despite the enthusiasm of the crowd, Probator Del T was losing them with his droning, largely meaningless double talk. He must have had brains where he lacked personality, because suddenly he just cut his speech short with a dismissive shrug. He spoke a few moments more in conclusion, then bowed and sat back down. The people, in turn, applauded, though without the enthusiasm of before. Paolo walked back to the center of the stage, turning to face the old man in his chair. The probator spoke with his little team again, then looked up and nodded. In turn, the MC spun around with one of those pirouettes of his, stopping to face the audience. He stood stock still, arms out, holding the moment, holding us all in his hand. Then he raised his right arm straight into the air. He paused just one heartbeat and brought it down with a sharp chopping motion. It was a signal that everyone but I seemed to recognize, and the dull background noise jumped to a frenzied roar that shocked and nearly deafened me. Paolo had flipped an invisible switch, and millions went mad with excitement. On the screen, the image of the stage changed to one of the courthouse behind, captured by a drone maybe 20 meters up. I briefly saw that very camera with my own eyes when two tall people directly in front of me stood apart for a moment. A dark dot hovering up near the third floor of the courthouse. It reflected some light off its plastic casing from a flood lamp. I couldn't actually see the door it was capturing from where I stood, but then few could, which were what the cameras and the giant screen were all about. There was another delay with whoever was supposed to be coming or going through the doors, so with some scattered order at first, which rapidly grew to an intimidating tattoo, the crowd began clapping. In seconds, there was unison, and it filled the air with rhythm and emotion. Clap, clap, clap. Clap, clap, clap. Clap, clap, clap. 
Each collective strike of palm on palm, especially on the third beat, was a shocking crack. It echoed off the walls of the buildings ringing the square. It floated up and over finery, infecting and infusing the even greater crowds in the outlying streets. It came back from rooftops and alleys of government and corporate buildings, of warehouses and factories, of slums and apartments. Like timed thunder, it bore down on us all, beat down on us all, thrilling us beyond anything yet. Everyone around me, everyone in the square, seemingly everyone, everywhere humans could be found, was clapping, gloves off, faces wrapped, eyes shining and staring at the screen. The drummer on stage took up the beat, and then her bandmates did as well hitting chords in time, enveloping the people and their shared excitement with musical strength and affirmation. She played and hummed with wailing little coos, so like the soft, sad breezes which had accompanied my desperate walk to this town and had chilled me to the very bone. And I kept time too, at first automatically so as not to stand out, then slowly with emotion of my own. I could feel it. I wasn't a bystander anymore. I was one of them. The perfect rhythm of our claps, the power of it all. It brought forth emotions of, well, I don't really know. Not then and not even now. But it was there, and we all felt it. We all reveled in it. And after long moments of waiting of sharing our joyous staccato to the heavens, we were rewarded. You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at Gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care. <laughs>